I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Kia ora, g'day, and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 120, Tera, with the early Māori textiles team. This podcast is recorded in Te Whanganui Atara, on the rohe of Mua'upoko, Taranaki Whanui, Te Atiawa, and Ngāti Toa Rangatira. We are generously supported by our amazing patrons. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash historyaotearoa. Today, I have an interview for you that, like all the interviews that I have done, is something very special. Last episode, we discussed the construction and use of wakatoa, war canoes. In that episode, we talked a little about the sails that Māori used to power their vessels, and more specifically, I mentioned the only surviving pre-European Māori sail, currently held by the British Museum. Her name is Tera, which in this context translates quite grandly to the sail. And she's actually not in Britain at this very moment, at least at time of release. She is in Christchurch at the Art Gallery, and will be in the Auckland Museum for six months in October after that. The reason I'm telling you all this is because I think it's super cool and an amazing opportunity to see a unique taonga up close. So... I reached out to the team who went through the process of getting funding, liaising with the British Museum, and then organising all the logistics. They quite kindly offered their time to chat with me about Tara and what the process was like bringing her home. Catherine, Ranui, and Donna all exude a huge amount of passion for Tara, and I hope their enthusiasm for this extraordinary taonga rubs off on you. Enjoy. Yeah, let's just crack into it. So thank you very much, guys, for coming along and sharing your knowledge with us and that sort of thing. It's always awesome to have people who are willing to spend time with me and with the listeners to yeah share their passions, the amazing work that they've done. 
So I think I guess we'll go around the room and you guys can tell us a bit about yourselves and kind of how you came to be sort of part of this project, whoever wants to go first. I guess it's me. Tilda. Andra Nuingarime. Naitahu Natimushungam. And I became involved with Pera through being on another project with Catherine at the British Museum. We had the opportunity to look at Pera, which we did, and felt that we needed to do something about it. That's how I got involved. Oh, well, uh, tēnā koutou. I'm Donna Campbell, nō ngā pohimenga My involvement in this project is, was on the invitation of Catherine and Anui. Tira is a tongue I've been fascinated with for a number of years, and so it was an honour and a privilege to be invited to be part of this project. So, yep, that's me. I'm Catherine Smith. I think it's pretty interesting that neither Ranui or Donna have mentioned that they're both very accomplished waivers. You know, obviously another big reason why we're all on this project together and it would be impossible for this project to exist without their extensive knowledge of Raranga and their interest and passion for textiles and their place in culture. But yeah, I'm a pre-contact Māori textiles researcher and textile scientist. And yeah, I've been really fortunate to get to work with both Donna and Ranui on a number of different um, kaupapa. And this is pretty special for all of us to get to work with Tera. Amazing. Yeah, no, it definitely is something very special, very unique, I think, as well. I guess the initial question is, how did this project kind of get started? Was there a catalyst? How do you even start to think about this is what we want to do. We want to bring Tara back to New Zealand. How do you start with this? How do you even begin to think how you're going to approach this? I'll I'll tell our little story if if that's okay with you, Donna mm. and Ranui. As Ranui mentioned, we were working on a another project looking at really early kākahu that were held in collections all around the world. And we were working as part of a Royal Society of New Zealand Marsden Fund grant together. And like Ranui said, it was the last day that we were there. One of the collection managers there, Jill, asked Ranui if there was anything else she'd like to see, you know, one of those sort of throwaway questions that you think people usually might not really have something in mind. But Ranui certainly had something in mind and she said, I'd like to see Tera. And I was pretty shocked when that happened because not that many people have gotten to see Tera. So we were taken into a room and Tera is so big, there wasn't a table that was big enough for all of Tera to be rolled out on. And so we saw a bit of Tera and Ranui looked up at me with the most enormous smile on her face, you know, just full of joy. We were both blown away. It's a breathtaking moment, I think, seeing that kind of artistry and talent and skill to be in the presence of a Tonga of that magnitude. And over the course of that sort of half an hour, Dranoi said to me, we've got to find a way to bring Teda home. And I'd worked with Donna previously. She was the first Māori person I worked with on any project ever. When I came to New Zealand 20 plus years ago, we worked on a project at Otago Museum together. And she, the poor thing, tried to teach me how to make raranga for a brief minute in time. And of course, Dranoi has worked for many years with Donna because 
Donna is a very talented weaver and Nanui organised a very important exhibition about Māori weaving called The Eternal Thread and they travelled to the US to get us. And also we knew that Donna had already been to see Teda with some of her other colleagues and that was something she was passionate about. So I guess it's just one of those things where people with a particular kind of interest come together. Then we just sort of had to figure out how to get some money. And I don't think we ever really envisaged that we'd literally bring Teda home. We were trying to think about if the British Museum burnt down tomorrow how we could make sure that all the knowledge and understanding and technology in Teda could be preserved and given back to New Zealand to be made available, even though it was held in a closed storeroom at the British Museum. So that was the start of the journey. And then coming together and writing an application for Te Aparangi uh, Royal Society uh, Marsden Fund Grant. And that's a pretty lengthy process. You know, it took us a bit of, you know, writing. You put in one application. They weed out 50% of applicants. It's pretty brutal. And then after you get through that first round, if you're lucky enough or fortunate enough and you've written an application that's of interest, then you're invited to write a more extensive application. Again, that takes a really long time. Then it goes to international referees. Um, they make comments. Are you get to respond or explain a bit more or clarify. Part of that is presenting budgets, outlining the kind of research process you want to go into. And then we were very fortunate to be able to ultimately get a Marsden grant. But that's a little bit like winning the lotto. So we could have done all of that work for nothing and many, many people do. So we're very grateful for the privilege that we were given to embark on this research. And then through the process of the years that we've been doing that work, we've ultimately moved towards that idea that we could borrow Terra and then went through the processes to do that. Oh, so it started more as a theoretical coming home of how do we bring that knowledge and, and I, I guess maybe digitally bring that back and then kind of grew from there to be like, actually, we could we could physically bring her back. Is that kind of how that developed? The thing is that we thought, just like Catherine said, about trying to gather all of the knowledge that Tira holds. Like, so for instance, the weave construction, it's highly complex. It uses the techniques used are not seen today. All of the, the construction of this Tonga. So to try and record and document that. Also, the provenance of feathers, the, the textile, you know, all of that work. And also to try and think about where did this, how did Tera actually end up in the British Museum? So there are these different layers of information that we wanted to pull together to be able to disseminate to everyone in New Zealand. And so that was was the driving force initially. And we, mm. I mean, always in the back of our minds, I think all Māori researchers who are working with Tonga overseas, in the back of our minds, there's always, oh, could we bring this home? But, you know, it's not, that was, that, that was there, but what we wanted to do was bring everything back about Tera because we just mm. didn't even, it was a moi moi, it was a dream for us to be mm. able to bring Tera back. Ranui, I think, Ranui, you've got a little story about that. Somebody said to you, it's impossible? or Yeah, almost impossible. When we were in the British Museum, I asked the question, what would, what was the likelihood of Tira coming back to Aotearoa, New Zealand? And I was told that it was almost impossible or nearly impossible. And I thought, oh, well, that's close enough for us. You know, <laughs> if it's not impossible, 
well, something can be done. <laughs> yeah, as long as there's a yeah, chance, guess, that's enough. It's a chance. <laughs> and I guess the background to that, Thomas, a lot of people who don't work in the museum sector are probably not aware, just how difficult it is to move artefacts particularly from, you know, large international institutions. So it's a long process. It's a process of relationship building. It's a process of having the ability to communicate with those institutions in a language that they understand. It's a challenging, lengthy process. And we were really fortunate. We were supported internally at the British Museum. So, you know, we had a lot of support from the curator of Oceania, Julie Adams, because without those kinds of supports, unfortunately, um, it's pretty easy for those things not to to come to fruition, whether or not, you know, aside from the ethics of those negotiations, it's that's why, you know, it was a dream because mm. you can never, ever be sure that you're going to be successful with those things. Definitely. Well, you've all touched on things that I want to delve into a little bit deeper, which is awesome. So before we talk about Tara herself, a bit about the process of getting her here, because I, I find that quite interesting. So to start with, I guess... To your point about dealing with the British Museum, how do you even pitch that to an institution so old and monumentally large as the British Museum? And of course, given the reputation of the British Museum, how do you how how do you even approach that? A pretty clear process. So anybody can do that. Mm -hmm. There's a link to a form on the website. You know, there's a committee that meets, I believe, twice a year that assesses those applications. And obviously the structured format also involves making contact to the curatorial team that are responsible for the artifacts. But in saying that, it means that you have to have the ability to navigate the processes. You have to have the ability to navigate to find the curator of the collection that you're interested in. I'm sure they get loan requests all the time. You know, we've had a lengthy relationship I think if the first time that we went to the British Museum, if we put in a loan application, it wouldn't necessarily have been successful. It's a long process of building up a relationship of trust. Do you think that's a fair thing to say, Ranoi and Donna? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is. And I think it was from our first visit when we were doing that other research project, I think just building up those relationships with the staff behaving in a way that gave the museum confidence that we knew what we were doing, we understood what we were doing, and that we were not there to create any harm or mistrust with the staff that were there at the time. So that when we did get to get the, the grant to study Terra, we already had a working relationship with the key people at the British Museum. We also committed to all of our research being available for the British Museum as well. So that yes, everything right. that we, we were funded to find out, it was important for us that the research be available to the British Museum as well. So that it's a, like a reciprocal relationship. We weren't there yeah. to go and just take all this information and see you later, never mm. see you again. You know, so we entered into a, a collabor well, not really a collaboration, but like a partnership with them. And that was where, that was how how the relationship building needs, you know, that's how you build relationships, right? So uh, that was always there at the outset. And so uh, for them to give us access, for them to give us space, they knew that they would be, they would be receiving the research that we were creating as well. 
think that was a big part of it too. Do you guys think mm. that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to note that 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 doesn't always sail smoothly because you you know you've got groups of people with different priorities and understandings, and so you know there's always going to be pressure points um, and areas for negotiation, and not necessarily everyone's going to be happy all of the, all of the time, and that's just part of this process of negotiation that happens all the time in um, museums and art galleries, um, and. Yeah, it's just that, I mean, you know, um, keep asking. You know, that I think Rano's attitude of if it's if it's almost impossible, um, you know, and we didn't, you know, you don't just put in a loan request um, hold. You know, we had a lot of conversations uh, yeah. about what was possible and what, what, what our desires and qualifications were. Um, they knew that um, the Kaupapa was really important to New Zealand. Um, you know, we had already applied to take samples from Teda to identify the plant materials and the feathers. And, you know, I'd, I'd been told that I'd never get permission to do that. You know, it's, it's little steps, relationship yeah. building, understanding um, the benefits for not right. just, you know, obviously it wasn't about benefits for the three of us. We were paid a lot of money by, you know, the people of New Zealand to do this work. So knowing that that um, the goal for the um, gathering the information is to um, provide access to the ability to understand Teda to as many people as possible, and that's a really important argument to make the exhibition because we could put up, you know, we're still working on making our information publicly available because a lot of it's really large information, like digital information, like the images. Um, things like diagrams of weave, um, you know, those things were in process. You can't deny that more people from more different walks of life will ever get access to the information about an artefact outside of an exhibition environment. So, you know, instead of just having information for weavers or people who are interested in the botany and zoology of New Zealand or people who are interested in sailing, once you throw um, an exhibition up, you've got school kids, you've got um, people who just happen to be are coming to an art gallery in Christchurch. So it just it it provides that um public access in a way that a lot of research doesn't. So that's a really strong mm -hmm. argument for those kinds of things. Yeah, that really quite speaks to me a little bit because I'm sort of one of those people that um when you go see it in person, it's different. You know, it's different than oh, seeing yeah. the pictures on the website. So for oh, me, yeah. it was like, oh, it's, it's you know, we can get these things over here. We can see them in person. Um, that's exciting for me as as a as someone who's just interested in history and, and really enjoys that and, and wants to learn more is just seeing these in person is so oh. much. You get so much more. There's so much more that you can see, um, that you can feel, even though you can't touch it. It's hard to describe to people sometimes. <laughs> very, very powerful. Yeah, and before the exhibition, one of the key uh, things for us was that we have some community engagement with this tonga. So before the, the before Te Rau was mounted, we had a three-day, um, we called it a wānanga, and um, invited people to actually come and touch this tonga, touch, take pictures, waiata, you know, sing songs, have to be in the space with this um fascinating tonga 
which is just like even just going into the back of a gallery or a museum is quite exciting just in itself but then to be able to to go right up to a tonga touch it feel it with no gloves on take as many pictures as you like and to talk about you know we like we had so many awesome conversations about mm. how you know people's reflections on the use of tira like the just all these amazing conversations with people and you know for us as researchers that was incredibly fruitful and I, and for the for the gallery and for the people that came to visit it would have been you know we've had feedback that it was just an, an incredible experience to be able to be so close to something as special as that and you know like we could have we could have just had an exhibition and then that's it have the exhibition but then like you say Catherine and you added to Thomas um to be able to touch something to be able to be right there with us take photos and it was just a one and once in a kind of once in a lifetime experience I think you know that there's a lot of talk about digital repatriation and I think it really misses mm. the point because of being in the presence of Tonga time collapses mm. um yeah. It's a different mm. mode of connection. It's powerful. It's tangibly powerful, emotional tonga. Mm. You, you don't get that from a picture. And it and it belies the notion that digital repatriation is a way of getting access to tonga. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I guess to, to slightly delve a little deeper into that sort of thing um what i guess for you guys personally was there sort of difficulty reconciling the fact that you have to deal with the british museum which is an institution with a particular reputation was there difficulty reconciling the fact that you were sort of not necessarily becoming part of the system but having to interact with the system that has not been super great for old theodore Well, you know, okay. if you don't. Oh, sorry, you go, darling. No, oh, you go. Well, you know, Thomas. You know, if we want to change the system, sometimes we have to engage with it, right? So, you know, you can't stand yeah. outside the hierarchies of power and just throw stones because nothing is going to happen. So, for us to engage, we need to engage with these systems in order to shift the thinking. And I really believe that this project that we have we have made a major shift in the thinking of the curators at the British Museum. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, we have a beautiful um, queer on our project who who is really very um, rangi māri. I mean, I don't even have the words in English, really. She's just such a beautiful way of communicating with people. And so having Ranui on the project has made, you know, that's been majorly... Um, significant in, in terms of what we've been able to achieve because I of her, yeah because of the way that she is and so I'm sorry to talk about you Rani, like you're not there but you know yeah but because of that having that her being able to clear those pathways for us you know like us young radicals me and me and um, Catherine who want to throw stones at the system but anyway <laughs> you can and, you know we've out. seen we've seen that all around the world um Dranui is the best ambassador and every time we go somewhere 
all of the busyness and the difficulty of providing access and how annoying it is to have researchers when you've got exhibition programs, all that falls away because of Ranoi's mana and wairua and her attitude to the people who are doing their best in institutional context. And we're talking about people who don't really understand the importance of the Tonga they care for to the people mm. that the Tonga belongs to. And mm. this, you know, again and again, um, trying to make it clear to people who have never been to New Zealand, um, and I'm not talking about um, Julie, the curator at the British Museum here, because she's a different kettle of fish because she's spent a lot of time in Aotearoa. But, you know, most people who work in European cultural institutions care for Tonga that is from places they've never been to and they don't think about, um, they don't have a mechanism philosophically to understand just how deeply important it is to be in the presence of the humans that belong to that Tonga and that the Tonga belongs to. It's a it's a tricky, you know, how do you talk about this stuff? How do you show people? I believe the way you show people is to bring them to New Zealand and yeah. um, stick them in a room full of people who are talking to their ancestor. Yeah, which is what, that is what that Wananga did, you know, that three days before the, to see people engage with this Tonga as an ancestor. You have mm. to be be there, you know. So that's what I mean about I think that we've shifted. We wouldn't have had to shift, um, you know, Julie's thinking, but she will take back her experience and she'll share that experience. So, yeah. Amazing. So hopefully we might see more projects like this in the future, fingers crossed. Um, People are doing this work all the time, Thomas. People, there's so many people behind the scenes working tirelessly from New Zealand. The Te Papa repatriation team, you know, these people are doing this mahi tirelessly on behalf of their people. Um, yeah. And yeah, I I agree. Um, you know, hopefully, it'll be easier for people who come after us to do these these things but there's so many people who have worked tirelessly their whole careers for this kind of work yep. already yeah i got yeah. to speak to the manager of the um repatriation team at the papa in a previous episode not so subtle plug listeners if you want to listen to that episode um but yes i, I have Remember. spoken to them previously yeah. <laughs> um, which was amazing so yeah no there's definitely lots of people um yeah, doing all sorts of uh, all sorts of amazing work for this yeah. sort of stuff. Um, so I guess uh, in terms of the the timeline, you convince the British Museum that this is a good thing that they should be doing, and they say, "Yep, that's pretty cool. We'll do it." How? What sort of arrangements do you need to make to get Tara to or back to Aotearoa? Um, I, I I guess I'm right in assuming that you don't just chuck her in a suitcase, put her on a plane, and away we go. Um, you know, she. I assume she's quite delicate. Um, needs specific packing arrangements. What do those arrangements look like? <clears throat> well, the um, British Museum they made a crate for Tera. The crate was huge. It um, 
weighed 276 kilograms, and Tera weighs less than 5 kilograms. So you can imagine how strong and robust that crate was. And um, Tera was very carefully packed and secured within the crate to ensure that it didn't, there was no movement of the donga inside of the crate from the time it left the British Museum to the time it arrived at the Christchurch City Art Gallery. And yeah, it's pretty impressive. And um, Joe Harawera from Ngatiawa and myself went over to bring Tera home. Now, the reason why Joe and I went was because Joe's a, um, he's the chair of the Afitikanga Committee for Toi Māori Aotearoa. So Joe and I went over at the request of Ngai Tuahuriri, who's the local mana whenua here in Christchurch. And we, um, Joe carried, Joe and I carried out the rituals at the British Museum for to prepare Tera for packaging. And then we escorted it home every step of the way from the British Museum in the truck to the um to the Heathrow loading bay where we were allowed to go in and watch it being packed and loaded up onto the plane. And then when we got to Singapore, dashing from one place to another to see it come off one plane and then go on to another plane to when it arrived to Christchurch. And we have had with us a conservator from the British Museum who um, also undertook these little efforts of running from one terminal to another <laughs> to see it unloaded and reloaded. So um, that was the physical part of getting it here to Aotearoa. And when it arrived, it was greeted by mana whenua, Ngaitua Huriri, at the loading bay in, at Christchurch Airport. And after they had carried out their chikanga, it was taken to the art gallery, where we all met up with it and had another little ceremony for arrival. And from there, it was rested for 24 hours before it was unpacked. And then, as Donna said, we had to be prepared for a three-day wānanga, which was just fabulous for everybody who came, as well as the staff at the Christchurch Art Gallery. I enjoyed it too. Amazing. To move from the process of getting her here uh, more into talking about Tara herself. We've talked a little bit about why she's significant, but I, I guess to really dive into that, why is Tara significant. Why did you guys go to all this effort to bring her back to New Zealand and all that sort of stuff? Well, <laughs> how long oh, we got? Hey, Donna. <laughs> <laughs> well, well so as far as we know, Tara is the only known waka sale of this type in existence. And so, first off, that's hugely significant. And, you know, like what's really exciting about the exposure that Tara has had and will still have, is that perhaps other museums may discover that they have other textiles that are very similar 
and uh, or they're you know whatever they are they think they're max or whatever but they could be sales so how exciting would that be that you know other tonga like this are lying around in um european museums so also you know the significance of as i mentioned before is about um the construction the weave is is very very intricate and complex um the strands that are woven are very fine the attachment of the feathers like everything is so f incredibly fascinating about this tonga the attachment of the feathers where they're attached why they're there um there's a piece that the like it's called the awama uh no what's it what's it called the matairangi pennant that hangs from the side that has feathers on it um it has triangles on the top on the top and on the bottom little woven triangles feathers attached across the top is 13 oh, panels yeah. that are, are woven together you know and when we weave um, panels together we're replacing one strand at a time you know we're not putting the panels together and sewing them together so that joining process is incredibly um amazing two weavers oh well actually it's incredibly strong in the first instance um it's really and we don't see that being used today and then the the zigzag openings that run vertically uh, um along the textile they are also an intricate pattern um so and very excitingly uh technically the voids that are running up the sale the pattern is not interrupted in the joining of the panels together it's it's kind of difficult to describe that um in terms of the technical way of weaving the panels together without kind of interrupting the join but also not interrupting the void you know because we have talked with sailors about the voids or the openings are to allow the wind to move through so if you can think about if we join the panels but at every section where the panels join the voids are closed you know so then that would make the wind operate in a different way so the genius of our tupuna worked out that we need to have the voids open all the way in order for the wind to control the wind in a certain direction or a certain way the significance really of, of the, one of the big things for me about this tonga is that we can look at it and think about how highly technical it is and the wealth and breadth of knowledge it would take it would have taken to create these sales of this type you know and to make them work so it's really about tupuna genius that's what genius I yeah it's interesting yeah. it when you look at tera it's the physical embodiment of mastery it's of mastery of navigation and sailing it's of mastery of new plants coming to our terra mm. understanding those plants cultivating those plants harvesting those plants and then it's absolute technical mastery of weaving form and function technical virtuosity 
extraordinary understanding of the environment, both on Aotearoa and off it on the on the water, um, all brought together in a way that um, you know technically wasn't practiced after that point. So with all the reinvigoration of understanding about uh, navigation and traditional voyaging and bringing waka back onto the oceans, um, the, the missing link is the sails that we used on those waka. And, yeah. you know, just by chance we have one to look at. And it took a long time um, for people to understand what it was sitting in the basement at the British Museum and then longer for Māori people to get to see the 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 brilliance of their ancestors, you know. So it's a journey too of rediscovery of awesome. that brilliance of from all of those aspects. Absolutely. So do we know how she got to Britain or is that a bit of a mystery? in terms of you mentioned that kind of they it turned up in the basement of the British Museum but do we know obviously it was in Aotearoa at some point and then at some point it wasn't and was then got to Britain do we know what that sort of missing link is no we don't there is nothing yet that we've discovered that tells us the story of Tera there are some theories out there but there's no no evidence yet of how Tera got to the British Museum from here. There's some assumptions as well, of course, that it was cooked, but there's no evidence, no written evidence. There's nothing that they've recorded that tells us how it got there and who took it there. Mm. Yeah, because there was the the theory that I saw. Sorry, I was just going to say, the theory that I saw was Cook took it over and then it was handed over from the Admiralty to... Um, to the museum, and so that's I, I think that's where that assumption comes from, is because the Admiralty had it at some point, and then that was they gifted it. No, so we've we're part of the process. So Donna's um mentions many of the aspects of the Marsden funding. Um, there was um understanding the wave construction and doing all that technical drill down, try to figure out how the wave works. There was identification of materials. There was um digitalization in the sense of using some very sophisticated imaging um, to capture Tera um, and another big wing of the project uh, was provenance. So a couple of researchers, a number of researchers did research um, and including in um, and at the British Museum um, and uh, there's no nowhere in any of the records including those of the Admiralty is written down that there was a sale. And there is also information. Um, so it's very hard to pinpoint the first time Tedar was seen in the collection. And it probably was around, um, uh, you know, the first actual evidence is um, at the turn of the 20th century, where there's a, a um, Hamilton shows a picture of Tedar. Um, but you know, there's all sorts of, um, you know, a newspaper article um, says that it was wrapped around other things and was discovered that it was a sale. Um, but there is no actual evidence that the Admiralty, or the Admiralty gave a large collection to the British Museum, but the sale is not mentioned. Um, banks gave a large collection to the British Museum. Um, Cook has been used as a catchphrase, really, for 18th century early contact 
rather than there actually being any prominent evidence that it was Cook or any specific European visitor. One of the lovely ideas that's come up, and that this is ideas come from Julie, is that it would make sense if it was part of Topia's collection. When Topia passed away, all of his amazing things that he'd been gifted on his journeys with Cook were given to Banks. And that would explain why there was no written documentation necessarily. So that's, you know, an idea. But get, as Rana always says, there's no firm evidence. There's been hours and hours and hours and hours of really, really detailed prominence research. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That's not, un- that's, that's not uncommon, you know. Some mm. museums still don't have a full catalogue of their collections. The British Museum is packed to the gunnels with lots of stuff and lots of stuff doesn't have provenance. This is not unusual. A large part of Te Papa's Kākahu collection does not have provenance. You know, the British Museum isn't the only storehouse <laughs> without information about how they got it. It's really sad. Mm. Yeah. So to, I guess, to go in the for even further back into that provenance, do we know where Tara is from in Aotearoa? Do we know what region she is from? Or is that also mysterious? We don't know who, where Teda was taken from or collected from or gifted from. Science is getting to the point where we could identify where the harakeki that Teda is made of could tell us where that's from. Uh, but te- harakeki, like all weaving materials, was traded. Uh, so we would be able to identify where the harakeki was grown, but we wouldn't necessarily be identifying where it was traded from. I think that's, is that a fair thing to say? Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Okay, interesting. That was going to be that was going to be my next question. Was do, I guess looking at the plants? Do we know would that would that help us? Um, but yeah, it's interesting that it wouldn't. I guess it would give us something, but not necessarily something terribly um, firm in in that regard, um, which is quite interesting. Um, so I guess yeah, talking about harakeke, um, what materials is Tara made from? So obviously um, harakeke. Are there any others that feature prominently in her construction? No. The body of the sail is harakeke. It's adorned with kereru feathers, with some kahu feathers included, and it's also got kaka feathers and a bit of dog skin on it. But in the main, it's harakeke and harakeke fibre, which is muka or fito. Awesome. You also mentioned a bit earlier that Tara is quite large. How how large are we talking? Because the, the, the photos don't quite really illustrate the the size too much. So I was wondering if you'd be able to give some vague measurements of, of how big are we actually talking. It's just over four metres. It's almost five metres in height. And, it's, and how wide is it, Catherine, is at the top? At its widest I'm, point, I'm I can't remember. Desperately trying to remember the dimensions. <laughs> That's why I said, I said vague, because um, like, you don't have the number, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. It's quite deceiving when it's lying flat, it looks does not look big at all. But when it's upright, it is quite cool. And you've got to so remember, it's, a, it's, it's a, a utility. It was, mm. it was made for a purpose, so it's to suit the waka that it was built for. So, it's it's hard to you have to use a lot of tables to unroll tedder and it's a large elongated triangular shape 
nearly five metres high and with a large streamer on one side, a matairangi, which is feathered as well. It's big. It's a big <laughs> textile. It, it, if you look at the width of the feno, the individual waving elements, which are really, really fine, that there's a lot of very, very accomplished waving to make 13 papa, 13 panels across teda and each of the joins as a triple join with that void pattern, Awa Matangi, that Donna was speaking of, that runs across all of those joins all the way from the top to the bottom. It's um, it's extraordinary. So it, do we know maybe how long this might have taken to accomplish? Are we talking like months, years? Do we have an estimate? No. We can speculate. <laughs> I mean, mm. how long is a piece of string? That's mm. what the question is. And how many people worked on it and what was the environment like and what was life like then? Yeah, mm. so we can figure out how long it would take to make one now, of course. <laughs> but, you know, no. Yeah, yeah, definitely. A lot of no answers for you, Thomas. <laughs> That's and so you've got to harvest and all the materials. You've got to harvest all the materials, gather all the feathers. Prepare the feathers. The feathers are prepared as well because they're notched and split along the vein. Um, You've got to make all the rope. There's lots of work. There's lots of work. Yeah, definitely. So due to Tara's size, do we know, I guess, if Tara is complete or whether she is missing anything? Tara's complete. Amazing. Brilliant. That was the answer I was hoping for. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it is a complete complete sale it would require more cordage to attach it to be used it would need more cordage to attach it to Dago but it is a complete sale awesome so to that end has she sustained much damage over the years because one thing that I did find I understand she has had a cloth backing sewn onto her which is no, that I see Catherine shaking her head. No, no. Okay, that that might have been from a dubious source. Uh- <laughs> so in the in the past, in the past, Tara's been on exhibition once. So in the past, when it was on exhibition at the British Museum, and you can see those photos on their website, along the back of Tara, across the hickey, across the joints, they've sewn these blue sleeves that a mounting system previously went through across several of the papa. We were fortunate enough to request those be removed before we went to examine Teda because, of course, those areas, you really need to see those areas for weavers to understand how it was made. It's like covering up the most Mm. important bits of the structure. So they've been removed. So Teda has no fabric backing and only previously it had some little sleeves across some structural areas for display. So no Mm. fabric backing. There's a couple of repairs. There's some conservation department repairs done with Japanese tissue and adhesive. They kind of mimic the fenu, so they're just adhered to individual fenu that have splits and then they have been in-painted to tone. They're really visible and they're also reversible, which is a conservation of cultural material, not your kind of conservation, my kind of conservation. It's a rule, I guess, a principle, an ethical imperative to only intervene if it's fully reversible. So those repairs can be removed tomorrow without any harm to TR. They're just providing some structural support. The British Museum 
part of the prep about bringing Teda over again means that the British Museum and two Māori conservators who we were able to secure funding to send over to be involved in bringing Teda over and installing Teda part of our team. Um, Donna was very successful in gaining some funding to make sure that they assisted. Some repairs were made to Teda to strengthen areas of weakness before Teda came over as well. So they're the only things. There's also another repair that looks like it was done, it was definitely done sometime during its tenure at the British Museum. I'm testing the fibres to check that that's non-New Zealand plant material repair. I think it's made with European materials and it's kind of like a darn, a very small area of Tedar. Most of Tedar is 100% original, 100% untouched, 100% non-intervened with. I'd say about 2% of Tedar has some minor repairs to it. Amazing. That's I think that uh, for me, that's quite even makes it more special in the sense that those sorts of things, you know, I, I guess for the age of today, you would ex- necessarily expect a lot of conservation or at least some conservation, significant conservation to have been done. So the yeah. fact that it hasn't, I think, really makes it even more special and amazing. Totally. So I guess to be a bit more broad, how much do we actually know about pre-European Māori sails in general in terms of their construction, design, and how they were used? Do we know a lot about them, or is there quite a bunch of information missing there? Well, I don't know anything about them, actually, and that's why I was interested in Tera. We've got, you know, one of our researchers, Ross Kalman, did a lot of research into Treo Māori terms for sailing and words associated with sailing, so there's kupu, we have depictions of sails after European visitors came. So there's a lot of really famous drawings. And in those drawings, you can see images of sails that look like Teda. If you look at the Isaac Gilsiman's depiction of Abel Tasman's arrival in New Zealand, if you zoom into that image really carefully alongside the big waka, you can see a ra on a waka and it looks like Teda. There are a lot of depictions of sails that indicate that Tera was pretty normal and not out of the ordinary when European people first came to Aotearoa. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, from what we know of customary Māori sails, there are two different types of them. There could have been more, but Tera is one of the types. And then quite a lot of people have done research about different sails around the Pacific. Uh, there's an amazing book called Hoka Moana that shows you know, some really interesting um, analyses of, of how those sails changed across the Pacific. And the British Museum has two sails from Hawaii. And Tahiti, yeah. Tahiti, oh, sorry, Tahiti. not Hawaii. So, yeah, there's not, there's very few surviving 18th century sails and we believe that Teda is one of three that we know of two from Tahiti at the British Museum and Teda, and we're hoping that some fabulous museum in Germany will ring us up in two days' time and say, oh, my God, we thought they were from the Maldives or we thought it was a large mat because everybody seems to think big woven things are mats. Yeah, sorry, I was, uh, just because you mentioned Charles Mills, I've actually got a book all about him that I've been reading, so I was flicking through Mm. that to see if I could find the picture that you were talking about. I don't think it's in that book. It would be, just do a Google search on Isaac Gilsiman, mm. Abel Tasman, and the picture's really famous and it'll come up. Yeah. Mm. 
Definitely. So I've only got a few more questions. <laughs> so we've talked a bit about, I guess, what we have learned from today in terms of like the weaving and that sort of thing. Is there any perhaps thoughts or theories that you guys have of what else she might be able to to tell us? I realize that's a bit sort of, I guess, a bit airy fairy to get you to predict what we don't know. But do you have any predictions on maybe what we don't know and what she might be able to tell us? Well, one of those things will be how that type of sail was used. If we can, you know, work, work with sailors and navigators to figure out how exactly, you know, so that's one of the, you know, one of the big things. And then to, to through that process of exploration, to understand what the role of the feathers and the role of the triangle pieces, you know, so... There's still a lot of information that Tera can give us, but and what we've done as much as we can in the context that we've been working in. So then we move Tera into the next phase, you know, into the next context, and then what's mm. possible. And then, and also that Tera can be used as a template to innovate and create new types of woven cells. And just going back to what Catherine said, you know, the missing link for contemporary waka is woven sales. And so you know, the, here we have Tera as the template, as the original instructions, right? And so there's still so much more that we can learn from this Tonga. Yeah, so much more. I met a really sweet young man and said, what did you think of the exhibition? And he said, it was great. I'm going to go and make one. That's the first that's response. Cool. Like, yeah. that's what it's all about, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I guess that was, that was going to be my next thing was, does that mean maybe a... A recreation that can be used to test and that sort of thing is that maybe on the horizon at some point? A group called Tedarding and Opa have already made a sale. So, Pete, that process of weaving a ra has been happening. They've done beautiful work. They're going around the mutu, working on marae with weavers, teaching them how to weave the pattern. So, you know, the work that they're doing to teach weavers and to get people weaving is amazing. And mm. I think there's certainly a lot of interest in people working on doing that and sticking a sail on a waka. I think that's pretty much the end goal, right? Mm. Give it a go. <laughs> Awesome. So Tara is here in New Zealand temporarily. Presumably she will need to be returned to the British Museum. Is there any thoughts, plans, potential that she may be able to remain in New Zealand permanently or go back to the British Museum and then come back permanently? I love that Tara. everyone says that. <laughs> I love yeah. that everyone, like, you know, everyone who came to the Wananga everybody and it's actually you know the big thing is Tera is here now mm. and so we can you know that's he te mea nui kia tātou katoa is Tera is here right now and we will you know we who knows what's going to happen next and so we do know that it's going on to Auckland Museum after at Christchurch Art Gallery. So that's an important thing to remember. So after yeah. Tedar's exhibition finishes at Christchurch Art Gallery, there's another six months in Tamaki. So everybody should, if they haven't already come to Christchurch Art Gallery to see Tedar, they should get their whanau and get up to Auckland and, and, oh, and make sure that they get to be with Tedar. Awesome. So just to, for the listeners, just to make that super clear, Tara is in the Christchurch Art Gallery until, is it October of 2023? 
I think. End of October, uh, yeah. End of October, and then after that, she will be in the Auckland Museum for the six months after that. So I'm asking this entirely selfishly because I can't make it to Christchurch or Auckland. What about Wellington? What about Wellington? Who knows, Thomas? (laughs) Who knows? You know, anything can happen. Like, you know, when you're told something's almost impossible, there's always a chance. Absolutely. Well, that's that'd be my vote. Bring bring it to Wellington, please, because I can't make it to Auckland or Christchurch in the next six months. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. Absolutely. <laughs> the last question that I have for you guys is something that I ask everyone that comes onto the podcast because I think it's a very interesting question that yields some very interesting answers. Is what's been your favorite part of working on this project? If you had to pick something what's the best what's been the best bit which i realize might be a difficult question really easy for me getting to work with rano and donna (laughs) i was just gonna say that too (laughs) you're being part of a really amazing team yeah that's my thought too i i think that through work through working the way we have over well since 2016-17 started out on this project i think we dreamed a dream and we've achieved it. And Tera is here in Aotearoa. And even though it's on loan and we had promised to take it back to the British Museum, the important thing is that it is here. And people have the opportunity to go and see it. So make the most of it while it's here at home. With all the ups and downs and the swings and roundabouts, one of the things that Ranoi has always said all along is keep your mind on the kaupapa and the kaupapa is Tera and Tera's been a guiding force in all of this as well, thus working together to make this happen and it's pretty nice feeling walking into that exhibition space with Tera, being with Tera in, in Aotearoa, it's pretty special being all together doing that. And I think I think the other thing for me is for Aotearoa to remember that Tera belongs to all of us. It belongs to all of us here in Aotearoa. So go see your Tonga. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I think that's a that's a pretty good note to end on. So thank you very much for taking the time to come and speak with me and to share your knowledge with myself and with my listeners. I'm sure they will very much appreciate it as much as I have. So thank you, thank you, thank you very much again. Thank you, thanks, Thomas. It's been thank you so much for having us. A massive thank you once again to Catherine, Ranui, and Donna for taking the time to speak with me and share their knowledge with all of us. I also want to thank all of those mentioned in the episode and those who weren't that played their part in bringing Tara home. Even if she is only here for a short stay. She is here now. So take the opportunity to see her while you can. Tara is part of your history, of those who came before us. You don't often get such an amazing gateway into the past than something made by their hands. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the Te Reo Māori we have used. 
you can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot, and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, haere tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.